You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, it's going great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I had a nice weekend. I got to do a little bonfire outside. I haven't actually started a fire in the fire pit quite a long time, so that was that was nice. That's awesome. Did you? I take it you finished Asa True for beginners, and you just uh, took Matthias Nordvig's lessons and threw some salt and liquor into the fire. I, I, you know, absolutely. And I think I might need to get a bottle of a uh, fireball for Loki. I feel like that would be his drink uh, with the little <laughs> devil on the bottle. So that's. You think the fireball would be? I, I think that'd be Loki's drink. Yeah, something about the sugar and uh, <laughs> and you see when people drink fireball. Um, Loki comes out. So, uh, no, that's, I think that's gotta be his drink. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. No, that, that's awesome. I, I have fires outside all the time and just oh, yeah. like sit out there with like some scotch or like wine and read a book. And yeah. I do that, whether it's like 10 degrees out, I'll probably do it even if it gets up to like 60 degrees out here at nighttime. So no, I was going to say that, uh, yeah. Cause my, my son, he's never seen a bonfire like that before. So he's like two and he comes out and he says, uh, he's like, hot, it's too hot. And he looks at the fire. And then I told him, it's okay, come look. And he's like, it's a dragon. It's a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> he's listening to our podcast too much. I think he knows. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, let's see, Sean, what's your drink of the week? Uh, I have had another busy week and it's going to be a Vesper Martini again. Uh, I didn't have not time. I did not have time to go to one of the breweries in DC, which I'm hoping to do soon. So it's another Vesper Martini, which is our favorite archetype or one of our favorite archetype James Bond's drink, which he ordered in Casino Royale. It's uh, three parts gin, two parts vodka, and some lemon and uh, Saint Germain. And when with Saint Germain, that's a nice, uh, nice touch. Yeah. Did you get my link? There was something that was a, a Johnny Walker black drink, other liqueur in there. Did you get? Uh, did you get that? I remember you sent it to me, but it was very weird and i would say like i told myself i tried one day I th- yeah i think i was i think it was probably like super late at night and i was like david what the fuck are you doing <laughs> probably just didn't answer but i'm thinking about sean's drink for the next week i should be getting ready for i'm gonna that. See, i remember it being intriguing but just like not something i would assume would go together but i'll definitely try it awesome um so i am curious because uh, i know you made the instagram post and i know the last couple of episodes we discussed stardew valley and in your post you put a rune on the image and then it was you were like asking for a good harvest or something like that yeah i think i have real uh real potential towards uh doing rune-based memes on instagram that's kind of my next my next job you know next job i'm going to attempt is just get doing a rune-based memes on instagram this for stardew valley it's it's going really good i'm getting a lot of gold and the chickens are doing well so i'm like i think that yeah i think I think it did pay off. Fantastic. I'm happy for you. And I'm happy for your farm. I think the rooms did work if you already have chickens, because I know you have to like uh, get some money to buy the chicken food oh, yeah. and everything. It's, it's, it's my first spring and I got chickens already. It's definitely, it's working. Awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> right, should Sean. we go in and uh, move into the story of the week? Yeah, Sean, what are we, what are we talking about this week? So I'll go ahead and get started. So in previous episodes, David and I have discussed Odin's hero's journey, along with its similarities to the, the shamanic journey. David discussed in our discussion of Havamal. So like Odin, Thor himself takes part in his hero's journey. And although there will be many, many differences in our series on the adventures of Thor, when when compared to our series on Odin and his lust for knowledge, there will also be some similarities. Specifically, that both gods show their few or maybe many flaws. Now in Odin's journey, we also see him take a few knocks, often by his own hand, to allow him to grow more powerful and more wise, looking at his sacrifices we discussed in the previous episodes. When looking at Thor, however, you see a clearly powerful god 
who instills fear into the hearts of giants, but you also see a God that fails pretty often. So we sort of saw all of this a couple weeks ago when we talked about how one day Thor was returning from an adventure slaying giants in the East, only to come to a river where he received a comical but also sinister dressing down from a ferryman who is actually his father Odin in disguise. Now, although we really don't understand, or I guess we don't truly know Odin's motivation for trolling his son, whether he wanted to teach him a lesson to help him grow, whether he wanted to keep his own wit sharp against the mighty Thor in a weird power trip, or whether or not he just thought it was funny. One thing is for certain, not unlike Thor's journey in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thor has a lot to learn. So today, we're going to be discussing the second story in our series of episodes on the adventures of Thor, specifically Thor's duel with the giant Hrungnir, a story in which Odin again plays a part, one in which Thor does not necessarily fail in this episode, but one where after reading, someone at some point said, hey, Thor must be the god of thunder. This is one of the few places where they really say that he's the the god of thunder. Although somewhere I've seen that he is kind of maybe a very early version of Thor was tied in with like the rain and uh, fertility rituals because his wife is the the earth, yeah, the, the fertile soil, right, of the earth. Yeah. Something else, just as you were recapping last week, if you take seriously that idea that Odin can be manifest in people that you'll run into out there in the world, it's a very funny thing to think about being Thor and walking around and you never know who you're talking to. Might all of a sudden Odin takes them over and starts trolling you, and you can never. You never know when he's coming. Never know where he is. Oh yeah. If if Thor was like walking around in like Washington, DC or something, I picture where Odin plays a part is he's gonna be some crazy like bearded homeless man that just jumps out and like does this like weird accent and just like makes Thor's life very uncomfortable. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the the Matrix or something, or it would make a great kind of a sitcom where like, you know, you're you're checking out at the register, you're just trying to get a sandwich or something, and then all of a sudden it's Odin uh, trolling you again. That sounds like a good TV show premise. <laughs> that's another one of our many projects, or one yeah. of the 40 projects that you're already we'll, working we'll on. We'll start pitching that one to networks, yeah. Fantastic. With this story, it comes primarily from a portion of the Proceta called Scout's Copper Mall, which we have discussed in previous episodes. I did want to clarify something. In previous episodes, I discussed how the primary part of the Proceta that, dis- that I guess discusses Norse mythology is called Gilfaganin. And the second part was Skad Skopramal. I-, I just wanted to clarify, Gilfaganin is actually considered the second portion of the Proceta and Skad Skopramal is considered the third because there is a short prologue, which is now considered to be the first part. So in Skad Skopramal, the story is that this character, Aegir, who's a god, travels to a non-godlike version of Asgard. And Bragi, who is a god in the sources, but in this case, he is not, tells Aegir a story of the gods, which, you know, in this, that's sort of, sort of Snorri Strolson's way of saying, hey, these are not actually gods, but this person is telling the story about the gods. So it's, it's more so just like a human invention than anything. So moving to the actual story of Thor and his duel with Hjormdir, Odin decides to ride his horse, Sleipnir, into Jotunheim and comes upon a giant called Hrungnir. Odin claims that there's no horse better than his own and that Sleipnir is the greatest horse ever. And Hrungnir does acknowledge Sleipnir's greatness. However, he gets rather upset because he believes that his horse, Gullfaxi, which means golden mane, is the superior horse and can defeat Sleipnir in a race. So... Because of Odin's bragging, Hrungnir decides to jump on his horse, Gullfaxi, and chase Odin out of his out of his realm, and that results in a race, or it results in a chase, if that, if that makes sense. So, I guess the race itself results in Odin traveling back to Asgard, Hrungnir following him in this, like, 
rage and not realizing that he actually ends up in Asgard. So they arrive in Asgard and because of Odin's hospitality, for some reason, he decides to allow Hrungnir to sit and drink and sup with them. In, in one version I saw, it sounded like actually that Odin was kind of in hiding. So he comes into Valhalla and then he's like, hey, where's that guy who's insulting my horse, right? My thought was kind of, you know, it's Odin's going against his Havamal coat that he's out there bragging about how great his horse is, right? Oh, yeah. You know, Odin doesn't always follow his own advice, or it goes to maybe how he learned all the advice he gives in Havamal is by his own uh, poor choices. Well, exactly. And that goes back to the episode two weeks ago when we discussed Thor's duel with the ferryman. Like, why is Odin just sitting there, like, speaking and, like, using his words to try to give Thor that dressing down when pretty much in Havamal, Thor or Odin decides to be very reserved, a reserved character who specifically says, don't speak too much because everybody knows who you are if you speak too much. So yeah, to your point, you do see Odin just kind of um, breaking his own rules pretty often. Right. And I like that you commented in here that with uh, Hrungnir gets there into Valhalla and then he's encouraged to drink. I think even it's that uh, Freya brings him drinks in Thor's uh, drinking mugs. So it's you know the, the largest beer mugs they have, which is connecting to Havamal, right? Ha- Havamal says, don't get too drunk but maybe get your enemies too drunk so they make bad choices. Right? Yeah, and that's ultimately what happens. Um, Hrungnir gets absolutely schlossed and starts insulting the Aesir, and he starts like threatening them. And you'll see why later, but I, I do think that this entire story was kind of orchestrated by Odin. I don't know if it was to teach you know Thor another lesson or if it was just Odin having fun and just kind of baiting this giant to like enter Asgard's where he knows that the he knows the ultimate fate of the giant at that point, if that makes sense. Right. Odin starts fights and then Thor has to finish them. I wonder if that's a theme we see again. (laughs) I mean, it it could be. But anyway, so Hrungnir is in Asgard or or Valhalla and is drinking the Aesir's drink out of Thor's cups. And he's being served by, you know, Freya, one of the goddesses. And he ultimately gets belligerently drunk. And I mentioned that, I mentioned that earlier, but he also, in his threats of the Aesir, he threatens that all of them are going to die. And outside of Sif, who is Thor's wife, and Freya, who you'll see is consistently the object of many giants' desires, wanted for himself. So keep in mind, and this is something I didn't say earlier, actually, Thor has not been present in Asgard. However, at this point, he does show up, and he gets absolutely pissed that a giant was invited into Asgard only to be served drinks. Hrungnir sees this and states that he was only there by Odin's invitation, and that as he is weaponless, Thor cannot kill him as it would be detrimental to his honor. Hrungnir recommends a duel at Grotonagar, which is considered the courtyard of the rocky fields, which would give him time to get his weapons, which weirdly is a whetstone and a shield. I'm really not sure why. As this is the first time Thor has been challenged to a duel, he felt the need to accept. And that's as I was reading this and kind of thinking of what is the you know the wisdom in within the uh, story. There's there's a lot of things. It's very dense. You know all the different ideas packed into this, you know, one that Thor has to be honorable, that he can't fight an unarmed man, right? Where that's kind of like Tyr, right? We talked last last week about how Tyr can't break his word, right? He's very much, that's mm-hmm. what he's known for. And that Thor is then maybe somewhere kind of between Tyr and Odin in a way, at least the way I think of him. But then also this is sort of like a Havamal code of being prideful, right? That that Thor wants to prove himself, that he's never been challenged to a single combat duel before. Maybe he doesn't have to fight, but he's he knows he wants to. And just the thing that popped into my head is this idea that when you're a hammer, every problem's a nail, right? So Thor is what you need when the nail that needs to be smacked down, right? Um, yeah. And just with the, you know Russia being in the news and things like that, this this phrase came to my mind that says in, in America, the squeaky wheel gets the, the grease, but then in Russia, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Pretty much the same 
same saying, but but flipped. Yeah, I appreciate that before, I have not, but I appreciate the topical reference. Yeah. yeah, but no, it is very interesting because if, like, let's say we do look at the story as Odin's orchestration, and he arranged Trungnir to enter Asgard. He knew Trungnir was going to get pissed off and chase Odin into Asgard. If this was a test for Thor, we can see right here that Thor may have failed. If you look at Odin's advice in Havamal. Right. It's like he, he succeeded by some of these virtues, like, yes, be very honorable, but then he could have killed a giant when they were defenseless and uh, been very easily successful, right? So it's yeah, really take the bait kind of, yeah. Or, or like, would it be like, I guess you want to be like uh, hesitant when it comes to people you invite to your home, which is this case, but like, do you need to go out there and like actually meet in a field like where the giant like ha- like set may set the rules, if that makes sense. So it's it's very interesting when you think about like, there's some adherence to have them all, but like in some ways it's, it may, it may indicate that Thor has a lot to learn. Well, it goes, there's so many things in the Havamal, right? So this is sort of a, a story of how, yeah, like even, even kind of the worst person you don't care for, you invite them into your home and you show them some hospitality. But then if they get a little too drunk, uh, you tell them that they need to get out or act right, right? But then you also don't kill a defenseless enemy in your home, right? So it's, yeah, it feels like it's back and forth, right? But it's, it's kind of what the Havamal is. You know? Yeah, that's true. So anyway, after Hrungnir challenges Thor to a duel and he agrees, Hrungnir travels back to Jotunheim and apparently his trip back becomes well known within the realm, and he becomes very famous among the Jotunar. So because as Hjornir was considered their strongest, I guess, fighter, they felt that there wouldn't be any hope for them at all if he fell against the mighty Thor. So there was a lot of riding on this for for the Jotunar. The giants also, and I'm really not sure why, but maybe it was more so for intimidation, the giants then fashioned a huge being made of clay named Mokurkalfi. <laughs> Sorry, Mokurkalfi who had the heart of a mare. However, Mokukarki's heart began to tremble as Thor approached the fields where the duel was going to be held. And then when Thor actually arrived, the clay giant that was built probably for intimidation then went ahead and wet himself in Thor's presence. I I didn't have a thought as to why they built this nine foot tall giant when he's supposed to be fighting um, Harungir in the first place, but that makes a lot of sense. Like, this, you know, I'm imagining this is much taller than Thor, right? I wanted to read the way they, the way it's written in the translation I had, because I thought this part was neat. So he says, uh, he was nine miles high and three miles broad under the armpits, but they could get no heart big enough to fit him until they took one from a mare. Even then it was not st- steadfast within him. When Thor came, Rungir had the heart, which is notorious, of hard stone and spiked with three corners, even as the written character is since formed, which men call Rungir's heart. So that, that stood out to me as really weird, and I'll come back to it again later. This phrase where they say that, that it's Rungir's heart is made of stone, it has three spiked corners, and that's the way that a written character is formed in a story, right? It's very, you know, when I first saw it, I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but it seems significant. I'll go back to that at the end. I just wanted to emphasize like where that falls in this story. Wait, but, so you mean like three parts of a, a beam? I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, it's, it's that's the way they word it, and it does, it when I read it, it doesn't quite make sense to me, saying that the the heart is shaped with three spiked corners, and that's the way a written character is formed. Like so, it's you know, um, Snorri is always writing to poets about how how to write poetry. So it's this idea that when you write a character in a story, something about it has three parts. It's mm-hmm. weird that that's just like shoved in here randomly. That that's what Hrungir's heart looks like, right? And uh, why is that, right? Yeah, in case of stories, instead of like um, you know, I guess introduction, plot, like ending, it might be just like introduction like plot climax or something like that or introduction build up climax you know 
Yeah, maybe that. And then this one, I, when I Google searched it, trying to understand what is this, you know, three spiked Rungier's heart, it came up that maybe it's the Valknot uh, symbol that's used sometimes in, that, that it was carved on some rune stones and you'll see it for modern day uses. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about it more after the story, but that was just a thing that, that stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you made that connection. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. So Thor, who arrived at this duel with I guess when Thor went to this uh, duel, he traveled with Thiafi, who is his servant. Thiafi instructed Hrungnir to stand on his shield as Thor would attack him from the underground, which I think in this case was a trick because Thor did not come from underground. But as a result of Thiafi's advice, Hrungnir stood on his shield and then he saw flashes of lightning and heard enormous claps of thunder. This is very interesting because this is where the connection with Thor and lightning comes, at least from the sources the press had in the Poetic Edda. Thor did not attack him from the underground, as I mentioned, but he rushed toward Hrungnir in a divine rage with godlike anger. He threw his hammer at the giant, and Hrungnir threw his whetstone at Thor. They collided midair, and the whetstone was broken into two. One part of the whetstone fell down to earth, and that's where modern smiths get all of their whetstones from droplets of that. The other side of the whetstone ended up hitting Thor in the head. However, Thor's hammer ended up hitting Hrungnir in the head and killed him. And his Thor servant, Thiafi, also seems to attack Mokurkafi, the huge giant, who ends up dying. And then as a result of this whole battle, Hrungnir ends up landing on Thor, where his legs were on top of Thor's neck and Thor could not get up. Which translation were you looking at? Penguin Classics. Okay. I was looking at a free one online and, and they said that it was, uh, yeah, that his whetstone was made of flint. So. That's where, yeah, and that they were just saying that, like, that's where all the flint on earth comes from was uh, this battle. And then, so one thing I was noticing, yeah, that it's that it's Thialfi who took down the nine mile tall clay giant, right, rather than Thor. And that, you know, I think you were going to mention something on Thialfi later. Let me well, yeah, that. no, no, we can, we can, we can talk about that now. We're talking about now. Um, yeah. So that's where, because I, I was reading in uh, Neil Gaiman's version of kind of the, the next story that we'll probably talk about next week or in a few weeks, that this is how, where Thor met Thialfi. So he's his, um, kind of his servant, and he's actually a human being but he's a human being who is the fastest human being on earth. And he, he gets into trouble with Thor so that he kind of owes his service to Thor. He's going to follow along and be Thor's uh, or shield bearer, something like that. Yeah, yeah. probably squire or something like that. A squire, yeah. But then that he's the guy who saves the day, right? He, he plays dirty when Thor won't. He goes up and he's like, hey, you know what? Thor's going to come at you from underground. You better stand on your shield. And then he doesn't have a shield to block the hammer, right? So it's like, yeah, because Thor is so honorable this human is very uh, useful to him. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't make that connection. Like if Thor did send a Thiafi to like tell him that. Yeah, I don't think it was Thor's idea though. I think it's this guy who he knows he, he looks out for Thor and does the dirty work Thor won't do. That's how I read it. Yeah, I mean, that could be it. I think in that story, it doesn't Thiafi like, oh, we can cut this part out if I'm wrong, but doesn't Thiafi like take part of like Thor's goat's yeah. leg or something like that? So L he's, Loki, he's obviously Loki not- tricked him and, and told him that if he eats the marrow out of Thor's goat's leg then he will be as strong as thor that's why thor doesn't let anybody eat the bones uh, but it's really that thor doesn't let anyone eat the bones because he has a magic goat that comes back to life uh as long as he puts all the bones back in the skin so he was yeah letting this guy eat his uh you know it's, it's his goat that pulls his uh, chariot across the sky but he, he takes the goat out and he's like let's kill my goat and eat it because we're hungry it'll come back to life anyways but just don't break its leg <laughs> and yeah of course the elf does so he's like well now and the thor's you know ready to smash his head in and he's like well what if i'm your servant <laughs> the story of the elfie yeah that's right and and we'll get get to that um <laughs> in a future episode but that's neil it does make version. More... yeah i'm not sure how it is in the prosetta but that was neil gaiman's version yeah yeah no I'm, I'm pretty sure it's it's very similar but what's funny there is that i guess thor who would try to be honorable like thor is very quick to to rage or quick to temper 
But if he's trying to be honorable, he happens to have this like a servant or this like squire who we know based on his role in that story. And I think it's, yeah, Utgarda Loki. He's up to no do-goodery or, you know, I think it may not have been Utgarda Loki, but it may have been uh, another story. But based on his story, we know that he's up to no do-goodery. So he might just be here saying like, hey, you might want to stand in his shield, bro. You know, once the, once Fringer's leg was on top of Thor's neck, Theophi, his servant, and the rest of the Aesir attempted to remove Hrungnir, but they couldn't. Until Thor's three-year-old son, Magni, approached and successfully freed his father, Thor then gave Gullfaxi to Magni, to which Odin was not happy, as he wanted the horse to himself. Which, as I mentioned, this may show that this was Odin's plan all along. He wanted to lure Hrungnir into Asgard. Maybe he wanted to test his son, Thor. But also, maybe he just wanted the horse, which Thor gave to his son, Magni, and Odin was not happy. Yeah. No, and that was one of my my favorite parts that I noted as I read through that, you know, all of the gods, none of them could actually move this giant, but then Thor has a three-year-old son who is strong enough to move it, right? I don't like, that's just a a great, ridiculous image, right? But also you have a two-year-old, so. Yeah, right. So it's it's imagining, yeah, that's the only one who can pick up the giant off of you, right? And it's, well, but they are Thor's uh, son, right? So it makes sense. And one one of my thoughts tying this into Joseph Campbell and that kind of hero's, the hero's journey that that maybe this was one of Thor's greatest tasks, right? He takes down the greatest of giants, right? That's what the giants were all afraid of. Once he's down, the rest of them will fall easily. So that maybe this is actually him passing off the torch to his son, right? That, that Thor was the greatest of gods that has to be the one to protect everyone and destroy everything. Mm-hmm. But now his son takes on the role next. I'll, you know, Probably later I'll talk more about why that's a significant part of a lot of these hero stories. And then I, it also really stood out to me this part that they put this you know detail in there, right? That, that Odin, he, and actually as they say in, in, the, in the story, that he doesn't want Thor's son to have it because he's like, well, he's, you know, his mother's a giant, right? And it's like, well, everyone's mothers are giants actually in, of all the Aesir, right? <laughs> but, but Odin kind of uses Odin's that as, mother's a giant, yeah. Yeah, Odin uses that kind of as this slur as to why his grandson doesn't need to get it. And- you know, it stands out to me, try not to say too much on it, right? But this idea that, you know, like fathers being afraid to be outshined by their sons, right? Like Thor's not afraid of that. He's like, I killed the greatest of giants, but my son was the only one who could save me. And he is, he is the next greatest after me, right? And, and then Odin's like, you know, so he's not the father of the child, but he like, he doesn't want to be outshined by his grandson, right? And Odin's going to get old or, you know, he's a God, but and generally, right? He'll get yeah. old. Eventually he'll be kind of useless. And it's, going to be nice for him to have a grandson who is that powerful. But but Odin kind of sabotages himself, right? This is actually the idea of narcissism. This is the thing you see actually in, in real people when they sabotage their own children because they're afraid to see them become better than they are. It's very much a, you know, a narcissist kind of personality trait. Um, yeah. And I think that's interesting because like, that's one of the reasons why Odin may have decided to disguise himself as the fairy man in the first place. And then like give Thor this like troll session or this dressing yeah. down. And now you see it here, maybe also Thor's son, Magni, he also sees as like a potential threat to him. Right. So it's my idea is this, you know, what are Odin's kind of shadow qualities, right? Odin's, like you said, he's a very complicated character, some good things about him, some very unpleasant things. And it's this idea that's from uh, the Ring of Power that's based on Wagner's uh, opera, the idea of Odin as a tyrant, right? Yeah, that Odin is a a ruler, but he's not a fair ruler, right? He's not like Tyr, he's not like Thor as honorable. Uh, Odin's very much, like you say, sometimes overly focused on power. That's what that spoke to me uh, as well as I, li- I like your theory though, that yeah, he, uh, he just wanted the horse. That's what all this is about. Right? Well, I think, yeah, maybe it was like a byproduct of, of the whole thing. He was like, Hey, this is a way for me to kill two birds with one stone and, yeah. you know, just like troll, like teach, teach my son a lesson. 
Yeah. Um, or like just give another dressing down or something, but then or to do his dirty work for me again. Right. Where he's like, I have the best horse. I also want to have the second best horse and now I can get it. Yeah. And we'll discuss this in a little bit, but we also like one thing I just want to mention that Thor's duel with Hrungnir, Hrungnir excuse me, takes place before the Thor and the Ferryman. So in the Norse uh, timeline that I've like jokingly discussed previously, this episode actually takes place before then. Right. So I'm wondering if, like this is just my head canon as a potential. I'm wondering if Thor giving Golfaxi to his son Magni resulted in Odin deciding to pay Thor back and saying, "Oh, I'm gonna like just destroy you verbally when you're trying to come home one day and not let you across the river." No, and that completely makes sense when because when the ferryman right is uh, is insulting him, he uses this as one of the insults, right? One of the jabs is like maybe even yeah. dishonorable he was when he killed this uh, giant, right? So yeah. Yeah, and I can I can briefly go through that. So in Harbaugh's Laud, which we discussed two weeks ago, in stanza 14 and 15, so the, the stanza 14 is Odin speaking. He says, I'll stand right here and wait for you. I think I'll be your toughest enemy since Hrungnir. Stanza 15 is then Thor. You want to talk about when I killed Hrungnir, that arrogant giant with the stone head. I knocked him down. I laid him out flat. What were you doing meanwhile, Harbard? This is just a proof that this this episode takes place after, or excuse yeah. me, before Thor and the Ferryman, which we discussed two weeks ago. So the last part of the episode after Thor defeats Hrungnir, Thor returns home and meets with a seeress named Groa. Her role in this is to remove the whetstone from Thor's forehead by singing. Um, she's a seeress. Maybe she maybe practices some satyr magic, which I believe is the case. And her singing is going to remove the whetstone from Thor's forehead. She begins singing and it actually works. However, Thor, who knows her husband, who I believe is dead, our Vandal the Bold, Thor begins talking, telling her about her husband to make her feel better because he's so excited that the whetstone is being removed from his head. So he talks about how he was on a journey with our, our Vandil. Somehow, probably because our Vandil died, he had to put our Vandil in a basket on Thor's back. It got so cold because they were coming from the north and Arvandil's toe fell off. Thor throws it into the sky and it becomes a star. So he tells Groa that he points to the star and says, that's your, that's your, that's your husband's toe. And then Groa becomes so excited about the news of her husband that her spells fail to work and the whetstone stays in Thor's head. And in the version I saw, it was actually that he was carrying her husband back alive. So he was like injured yeah. and alive, but his toe got frozen off. Right. So he's like, well, I, that's, that's a frostbitten. Let's snap that off and let's throw it in the sky. Right. Yeah, actually. So yeah, and that's why, like, I'm not sure if um, Arvandil was dead, but for some reason, like Arvandil returned with Thor, but hasn't seen his wife yet. And so like, I, I think, yeah. So like, I, I was curious about that, but like, yeah, maybe the reason why she was so excited was that Arvando was still alive yeah. and she's excited at the prospect of seeing him to where she couldn't sing and remove the whetstone from Thor's head. And that's where in, in my translation, they were calling it a hone rather than a whetstone, but it's basically just, it's the, something like a stone that you use when you sharpen your blade, either your knife or your ax. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to kind of, you, you hone the blade to kind of sort of lock the edge in, right? So it's not uh, going to dull too easily to make it kind of sturdy, right? Reinforce it, I guess is a way to say it. And, and that's apparently like one of the, the myths that would have been told around this time is that if you throw a whetstone across the floor or across the house, it'll hurt Thor, right? So you can think this is the threat you tell your kids when they're like throwing the whetstone and you don't want your whetstone to chip. It's quite important, uh, you know, back in these times, right? To have a good whetstone for sharpening your axes and, and knives being like, you're, you're making Thor's head hurt. Stop it, right? And that's... <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy that image from there. Um, yeah. Or the then, lesson is very simpler and just don't use a whetstone as a weapon. Right. I mean, one, don't use it as a weapon, right? But also, yeah, don't, uh, because it's going to shatter, right? That's, yeah, that's sort of an interesting, like a weird advice for life. Don't, don't be throwing your, your whetstone around. It'll, it'll break. But then the other part I thought tying in these themes about heroes journeys and even a little bit like the, the shaman journey that we talked about, why is it that Thor remains wounded? Pretty big scene in here explaining why he remains wounded. So it would be this idea. It's, it's the lesson that Thor needs to learn that he's not invulnerable, that he's, you know, mm. Is the way I saw it. He's on the surgeon's table and they're trying to work on him and he's just busy cracking jokes, acting like it's not a big deal being like, Hey, you know, while you're busy doing all that magic, let me tell you about your husband that you thought was dead. Right. And his overconfidence, right. That needs to kind of be put in check a little bit. Right. So it's part of that. I think it goes back to now that, that Thor is, he is wounded. He's not invulnerable. And then he's kind of passing on the hero's role to his son. Right. That's kind of what I, yeah take out of it. That's mostly because I've read some of this Joseph Campbell stuff. I'm like, oh, there's a, a theme I see show up in uh, sure. in this Thor story. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah, that's, that's, was, that was my thoughts. There's, there's this whole song that's in the, uh, the version, but it's far too much to go into. It's, I'm sure it makes more sense trying to like sing it in old Norse where things rhyme. So maybe in, if we're, if this podcast still exists in like 10 years and we actually old, know old Norse, maybe that. Come back and sing it. Yeah. It's, you yeah. know, it's a thing that, um, that uh, J.R.R. Token does is have these long, you know, kind of odd songs that the dwarves are singing, right? And they're very much of the style of this song. You can go get a good translation, look it up. I'm not going to, we're not going to try to sing it because I don't think it actually flows very well. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So the that's, that's the story. Um, so Odin entices a giant to enter Asgard. Thor kills the giant, gets a little bruise on his forehead with a whetstone, and Magni gets a horse. Sounds about right. But we all learned a lesson. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So we can move on to your, uh, I guess, to the next part then. So so real quick, before we move on to um, the next por- portion of this episode, I wanted to briefly review some of the other sources with some of the characters that were mentioned in uh, this story in Scott's Copper Mall of the Prosetta. So we mentioned briefly Harvard's Laud, which we discussed two weeks ago in the two stanzas with Thrumnir which Harvard's law being from the Poetic Edda. But there's also another stanza, stanza 39, that features Thialfi, um, again, Thor's human servant. There were wolves, hardly women. They broke my ship when I landed ashore, threatened me with iron rods, and chased my servant Thialfi. What were you doing meanwhile, Harbard? Again, that was Thor speaking to Odin, but I just wanted to include that because that mentions Thialfi, Thor's uh, servant, who we're going to learn about how he became Thor's servant in a future episode. I think that was part of that so, part in the uh, in the Harbard's lot where Odin was being like, "Oh, so you were fighting women over there?" Right. So there's maybe a lot more to the story where where Thor gets into uh, Jotunheim, and then there's giant women that are kind of fighting him while he's trying to get back to this fight against um, Rungir. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the previous stands, I believe Odin was making fun of Thor for fighting women, and that yeah. was Thor's response of saying, well, yeah. they were wolves, not women. Yeah, yeah. So briefly, in the, and I didn't mention this in the episode, but in the story on in the press edit, they mentioned Thridvanger, which is generally mentioned as Thor's realms, among other sources. However, I just wanted to include one stanza from Grimnismal, where Odin is going through a few, like, through a few stanzas, Odin is like stating the realms of the different gods. In stanza four, he talks about Thor, and he says, I see a holy land which lies near those of the gods and the elves. In that place, Thurthheim, Thor will live until Ragnarok. So Odin mentions Thorthheim being Thor's place where he lives, but Thrud- Thrudvanger is generally mentioned as Thor's realm. I think as you say that the, the Thurthheim, I believe with the Old Norse, is basically just saying Thor's home. 
right? So it's kind of within. No, that makes sense. Within maybe Asgard, which is maybe like a continent, right? Then you would have there's Valhalla, which is Odin's hall, and then there's Thor's home is another hall or country or yeah depends how much you yeah. want to get into the geography of uh, the yeah. <laughs> yeah or like if it's like if it's different places a realm or a dimension or just like another piece of land but in in Voluspa or excuse me in Grimnismal Odin goes through like every god and mentions the different realms that each each person lives in so it's pretty cool I'm sure we're going to get to that one episode as well but I just wanted to include that to show that between the pro set and the poetic edit there's some like differences but if it is just Thor time, then it's, that means Thor's home, then yeah. that will solve everything. No, and that it, it is interesting how all of these kind of connect together, right? It's sort of, you know, you need the backstory, but some of the backstory, you have to go forward in time to get some of the information that actually makes sense as the backstory, right? It's all very, uh, that mythological time frame we talked about, I think. Yeah, and definitely. So, so this, this was my thought on kind of some of the, the psychology that came up, you know, as I've said a few times, I'm reading um, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And Joseph Campbell was very inspired by uh, Carl Jung. And one of Jung's ideas was this idea of archetypes. And it actually, as I've been reading more, it's, he gets it actually from Plato's term, the, the Platonic ideal. It's this idea of like, what is a hero, right? And we're not thinking of, you know, because your mind goes to Superman and Batman and maybe Thor and all these different heroes. But what is it that's the archetypal hero, right? The hero that no kind of perfect hero exists. You know, you can't put a finger on it but it's the thing that all heroes have in common mm -hmm. is the archetype of a hero. And that Jung says there's essentially infinite archetypes, right? Anything you can think of, there's an archetype for, you know, you think of a chair, right? What does the perfect chair look like, right? You can look at every, every chair that you've ever seen and they don't all look the same, but there's something that a chairness to them. So that's kind of that, what makes something a hero. Uh, so the archetype chair would be Jean-Luc Picard's from Star Trek, the next generation. Well, it's one of those things, right? Because you look at it and it's like, it's a very space age chair, but you know, it's a chair. There's something very, it has a very clear chairness about it, right? But yeah. then at what point does a chair become so unchair-like? It's no longer a chair, an odd uh, metaphor for me to use anyways. But that, the idea that, you know, and some, and some theories will try to say like, there's maybe 12 archetypes or, you know, how, how can you sort of simplify it to understand rather than just everything's an archetype, right? What are the archetypes in the human unconscious? There may be ways you can describe a person. So there's a couple different theories that I see, you know, both talking about it's a, you know, theories within mythology, like within comparative mythology and theories within um, psychology, especially analytical or personality psychology. So one is this, it goes back, I said, I'd connect back to that idea of the, the Valknot. Essentially, it's a image that's three triangles that all kind of interlock, right? So it's, it's three-sided shape, the triangle, and there's three of them, right? So that going back to that idea we talked about several episodes back, the significance of threes, uh, the yeah. question of what is that rune? It's, 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 you know, on some rune stones, what does that really mean? I looked online and there's really, they say there's really no good answer to what does it actually mean? That sometimes it shows up when they're talking about Odin or when they're talking about horses. So it's interesting that they had a horse heart that they put into that giant or the, the clay creature, right? Maybe something about with, you know, sacrifices to Odin. And then, you know, like Sean was mentioning last week, that idea of the Trinity, right? But it's really not that they took this image from Christianity, right? Of the um, the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, right? It's really this idea that the significance of threes, this Trinity thing shows up in other cultures too. And, and another thought I had of what that Valknot symbol might mean kind of is this idea like something that puts fear in the heart of men, right? So it's something like either courage or having fear in your heart, the way they described it when Thor intimidates this, uh, the, the giants, right. That they, they well, yeah, in this fear. case, in this case, the giant or the, the giant had the, the, I guess the three pronged heart, right. Three pointed heart, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
coming back to that idea of archetypes, there's a, a model that is like, it shows up in all kinds of stories throughout all of human history. The, the image of like the son and then the father, right? So those are clearly two archetypes, right? That there's all kinds of figures in mythology that are the son or the father, you know, kind of like a lot of kings are very fatherly. And then there's the hero. So the idea is that someone's born and they're just a boy. And then at some point they become a hero if they go on a hero's journey. Um, and then maybe later in life, they become a leader or a ruler, right? Kind of a king. So that would be one thought of kind of a, a triangle, a trinity, right? Is the, the father, the son, and the hero. Uh, who's inspired with courage, right? So you can kind of then even tie it back to that idea of the Holy Spirit. That also um, yeah. sort of reminds me of Riggs the Law. Which which part? Yeah, where is they're describing the different layers of uh, classes and but then there's it, you know it could be a three part kind of uh, archetypes of you know that you can sort of see it in yourself, right? Or what stage in life are you at, right? Are you a son? Are you a boy? Are you somebody's child? Or are you a a father, a leader, right? A king? Or are you a hero that's fighting for? some cause or fighting for other people. But I like this one model that's, you know, as I talked about kind of writing a book, I have these ideas where it's actually, it's four points, right? So rather than just the, the son and the father, the hero is paired by the magician or the wise old man. And it's interesting because in that same, as I talk about the, the mythology um, kind of archetypes for women, they would say that there's the, there's the daughter, there's the mother, and there's the wise old crone. They, you know, often they kind of use this term, not necessarily like polite or politically correct or whatever, right? But it's just that, you know, in life, the stages that women go through, right? Often mm -hmm. they're they're a child, right? And then they meet somebody and they're at least a wife. Maybe they become a mother as well. Maybe they're motherly towards other people in their life, right? Taking care of uh, younger people or caregiving other people. And then at some point in life, they're much older where then hopefully they're appreciated for their wisdom, right? That's where in, in Norse mythology, they're very much the seeress is the, the wise yeah. old woman, right? So that's the idea is, and then you could, that three-part description for women, right? Historically is kind of all there was, was to be a girl, then a mother, then an old woman. But then in our current society, there's actually another a fourth option, which would be the independent woman, right? Who would actually be kind of like the hero, right? So it'd be the, the female version of Thor is a way to kind of say that. Sure. So- and this is actually an idea that like sort of that's a, a way to describe your personality. Like who is your true self, right? Are you meant to be, so sometimes they'll say, you know, the son, but sometimes they'll say the lover, right? So this is a person who's not necessarily as like responsible and self-sacrificing as Tyr, but they're the lover. And then for, for women as well, it's sort of the, the daughter slash the lover is before they become married, right? And then mm -hmm. they're married and then, and the mother, that archetype kind of goes together. Um, but then I like this parallel, especially for the, for the masculine personality kind of version of that there's Thor, the hero, and then there's Odin, the the magician or the the shaman, right? The, yeah. And the idea is that, that Thor is very much like focused on courage. He's focused on the external world, right? Fighting giants. But Odin seeks out the, the chaos, right? He, he goes to the underworld. He goes to the chaotic realms because he's, he's obsessed with this wisdom, right? And <laughs> I don't think Thor would dream of, Thor's not going to go wake up Cirruses and do Sadir magic or anything, right? That's no, he's going to look for more giants to kill. Yeah, right. It's the complete opposite of, of what Odin does, right? So that's yeah. So it's you know that's the idea of these these archetypes and to sort of see it within yourself. We talk, I think I talked a bit last week talking about the runes of what is it like to kind of you know act like Tyr, right? So now we're bringing in in Thor as another way to to defend others, to uh, destroy your enemies, right? And, and they talk about I, I put in that quote 
from the source where it said that, you know, Thor shows up with godlike anger, right? So that's the thing when you, you know, if you have that feeling, that expression, you're in that archetype. And then, this, and then it goes back to this idea of seeing these images when they show up in stories, right? So that's Merlin with uh, King Arthur, right? It's Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, right? It's yeah. this advisor that advises the, uh, the hero eventually in life, right? The hero might become that wise and be able to be that sort of a, a mentor to others. Right. And then it also might kind of represent, you know, within yourself, right? Even if you, you're not seeing yourself in that role, being uh, the wise old man or the, you know, the, the mentor like that, is there an internal part of your mind that is all those pieces of wisdom that you collect, right? That's sort of one of the, the archetypes within your unconscious, right? That there's yeah. a part of you that's a uh, fatherly. There's a part of you that's a lover. There's a part of you that's a, a hero and destroyer of giants. And there's a part that is the introvert, right? Kind of seeking wisdom, diving into books, things like that, maybe is a way to say that. So Sean, I just wanted to throw it back to you. What, what are your thoughts? What stands out? I'm not sure if I explained it all clearly. Well, it's it for the most part. I mean, you mentioned, I know in a previous episode, you mentioned the significance of threes, right? And so you have these like three different like paths of like somebody's journey, but you also mentioned there's also the path of four, and this reminds me of a few episodes ago, or like maybe last episode where you mentioned younger Futhark and it being 16 yeah. runes. Um, so I'm just trying to make those connections there if, as to whether or not like this, these numbers meant something, you know, to the Norse, or if it's just like a natural like technique or like a storytelling, a storytelling technique, like across the world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, the, uh, I said I was going to kind of come back and say what I think, what I think the, the Valknot kind of describes, right? So it's, you were saying, right, is it three or is it four, right? And then I think when it's, if you're talking about the many faces of Odin, right, then Odin's kind of in the center. And these are the three different ways you see Odin, right? Kind of as, there's definitely some stories and it's even more so true of um, Zeus in the, from for the Romans or for the Greeks. The Greeks, but that, yeah. You know, being the lover that is out there, you know, basically cheating on his wife and just, you know, just <laughs> getting everyone pregnant and fathering all these children, right? That's, sometimes that's Odin. Uh, sometimes Odin is kind of a warrior, right? Sometimes he's a bit like Thor. Uh, that he has to go battle. And then sometimes he's the, he's the all father, right? Sometimes he is the king that kind of brings everyone together. I, th I think sometimes he's kind of like Loki as well, right? Or maybe he's influenced yeah. by Loki. Um, he's causing quite a bit of chaos, right? But that's one of my thoughts. Maybe that's what the Valknot symbol means. Um, are you kind of like leading to the idea that Odin is trying to teach Thor the other layers as opposed to just being this like one dimensional person? Right. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that might be the idea that that's needed, right? That, yeah. That's the thing I really identify with is that any of them to too extreme of a level causes you problems. It's not, it's not healthy to be too self-sacrificing, right? It's not healthy to be too much Thor always looking for a fight, right? So that's, and then it's also that, you know, you said before that Odin's kind of the God of just being a human, right? So he, Odin himself goes to the underworld, gets more depth of wisdom, but then he comes back and kind of shows you that these are the different stages of life, the son, the father, the hero. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to talk to your, talk to your last story there. With the uh, sure. water draw boy, yeah. So this is a this is a fun story. I, I just read it this morning as I'm reading. Uh, yeah, I read Joseph Campbell, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, just in you know 15 minutes at a time in little parts. I've been trying to uh, go through all the parts. It's interesting because the hero's journey, the way he describes it, has many parts. It's not just like there's you know three things that you see in every hero story. There's something like 20 or more parts, and they're not all in every. That goes back to the. It's the archetype of what is it to be a hero? Any one instance of a hero in a story will have uh, several of these, might have four or five, probably won't have all of them. But this is one story, it's a really short story and it has six of these kind of important um, images or lessons or however you wanna say it. So it's a, 
is a Pueblo Indian myth, which is interesting. Actually, the, the, oh, nice. the Pueblo Indians are here in New Mexico and it's called the myth of water jar boy. So it says that there's a girl and she's collecting clay. Uh, she, she goes down to the river with her grandma and she's collecting clay to make pottery. And she got some of the clay on her leg. And so then a few weeks later, she gives, she discovers she's pregnant and her grandma's upset with her for getting pregnant. She didn't think she did anything to get pregnant. Um, and then she gives birth to water jar boy. And he's a little talking jug made out of clay. Um, and this is a very, I feel like the story must be humorous because to me, I find it very, right, it's, it's very funny. It's, and then there's, and then there's a, it's a, he's a talking little jar made out of clay. And, you know, they're kind of very concerned by this. They don't, they don't know what to make of it, but he, but he's a child and, and, they, act, and they feed him. You know, he doesn't have any eyes. He doesn't have any arms, but he's, he's a little jug and he talks and you can feed him. And he grows a little bit bigger as, as time goes on. So a while later, he says to his grandfather, he says, take me hunting with you. And his grandfather says, but water jar boy, you're just a water jar. You have no arms or legs or eyes. He says, but take me anyways. I want to see the world. So his grandfather takes him out as he goes hunting and he's asks his grandfather to put him down. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll set you on the ground. And he goes rolling along and he's chasing after a rabbit. He's trying to hunt a rabbit and he smashes himself on a rock. And then a little boy who's almost, you know, a fully grown child jumps out and he's, he's dressed and he has a bow and arrow and he goes and he hunts 10 rabbits and brings it back to his grandfather. And his grandfather brings him back to town and shows how proud he is. And so Sean, I wanted to see what do you think of the story? Either just your, just your first impression, or do you see any like things that show up as powerful themes? I'll tell you a couple of themes I see in a moment. But. I, I feel like this, this uh, story reeks of like Disney yeah. <laughs> story arcs. I mean, I feel like, like somebody's just like living this simple life, but once more, and then I yeah. feel it's like the little mermaid or something like that. And a, and a little bit Pinocchio, right? He's, he's, yeah. he's, he wants to be a real boy, but he's, he's a, he's a clay joke, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you want to escape the ocean. So it seems like a pretty standard, uh, I guess story arc, but I also like wondering, like, oh yeah, Odin. I wonder if this is him like losing his eye, or Thor getting a whetstone stuck in his forehead, and now he gets to be Thor gets to be a real boy or right. something like that. But you're you're really picking up on that part of the transformation, right? That thing is kind of like the yeah. shamanic journey, right? To be a hero, you kind of have to like lose something, but then you gain something, right? I think that is. Um, and he lose, I guess, the jar lo lost his shell. Yeah, well, this is what they, they they were afraid that he smashed and he's he's gone forever. So I'll tell you like why why I see it as having so many like powerful images in one small part. So one is actually, and this is my um, wife pointed out to me. She's like, it's a little blasphemous, right? Because um, there's a virgin birth, and that's where Joseph Campbell actually talks about that the the uh, Christian or the Catholic missionaries they they wrote down a lot about this phenomenon they saw that they thought the devil was playing tricks on them because every time they met a new culture. They'd be telling them another story of a virgin birth that was, you know, this, this blasphemy. All these pagans have a virgin birth story that there's a woman who becomes pregnant by a God or the earth or something that's not a man and then gives birth to often a son, but not always a son. And that shows up here, but they say it shows up in like almost every culture. And they didn't learn this story from the Christians. It's just a thing that people, you know, that question, where did the first man yeah. come from, right? It's like the chicken or the egg, right? So that's kind of one way to say it. And then there's this, this part where the, you know, the, the mother and the grandmother, they're afraid for him to go out, right? He's a clay jug. They're afraid of him getting broken. He's a, he's a little boy that can't walk or talk, you know, or he can talk, but he can't walk and he can't uh, do a lot of things. And so they want to keep him at home. They don't want him to go out there and get broken. Yeah. Right? Like but an then, overprotective parent. Yeah. 
Right. And, and the grandpa's kind of like, I don't think it's a good idea. And he's like, take me. And the grandpa's the one who's he's a little bit reckless, right? He's like, yeah, sure. Fine. Why not? Right. Let's take him out. What, what's going to happen? Right. And then he's like, well, let me go hunt this rabbit. And he's like, I really don't think that's a good idea. Like, well, let me do it anyways. Right. And he says, fine, fine, go do it. Right. So that's, you know, if you get into the, the Freud and the Jungian approaches, the, the, uh, Carl Jung says that the hero's journey is the alternative to the Oedipus complex. So you don't stay at home and get married to your mother. You need to go out and do the hero's journey. Right. So that's within here too, right? I'm trying to think of another one that stood out to me. But then, and then that he has the the wise old man who's he's is his advisor, right? He goes out with, it's his grandfather, right? Who takes him out and he learns because he doesn't have a father, right? Then the old man takes him out and lets him learn how to hunt, right? Gives him that there's some kind of wisdom in him risking his life and rolling around after rabbits, right? It wouldn't seem like it makes sense, but it's the only thing that actually let him develop, right? I think that very much goes to like the Pinocchio story, right? Of, um, it also kind of goes to the fact that we made a joke about how Odin's father does not play a role. Yeah. Like outside of being Odin's father, right. but Odin goes to his uncle Mimir for yeah. advice. And so right. like there is that that character that somebody looks to as the source of wisdom, like outside of your direct line, I guess. And that's what you're going, right? These these things they show up everywhere. And then it's and then this idea of what's generally part of the hero's journey that they find something valuable and they bring it back to the village, right? So for him, he found he hunted 10 rabbits, which I'm sure was quite impressive considering he was just a little jar when he went out there that morning, right? But then in other stories, it's, you know, finding gold or it's finding, you know, like a sleeping beauty or a princess locked in a tower, right? So as they find something valuable and they come back to town and, and then they share it with other people. So they didn't just improve themselves, they improved the whole uh, society by going on the hero's journey. So I think that's yeah. at least, yeah, and there might even be, a, there's probably more things here, right? You can really break that six sentences, but you can break it down into, uh, so that's especially wanted to uh, give a little more detail on what are we saying about the hero's journey? You know, I think this, this story about Thor that we talked about today, is actually a very complicated story, right? There's actually a lot of parts. It's going in a lot of different directions, right? The, a lot of the Norse, it's the way they wrote, especially, right? The, uh, the poetic Edda, the way they wrote their poetry. It's very deep, right? There's layers upon layers that you have to understand the, uh, the kennings, right? To really, to really get it right. But this one's, yeah, a quick, quick little story that I, I found very fun when I read it this morning. So. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. Like, and I'm wondering like what Thor's, uh, like Thor's arc is going to be, because we know he's, he's like very one-dimensional, as I mentioned, he, he's quick to anger. He's a great warrior, yeah. but he also, he also can be manipulated easily because of that. Oh yeah. Um, and we might and be missing did... pieces, right? It, it, it's that question, right? Will will Thor learn his lesson or will he always stay Thor, right? Because he is that archetype, right? <laughs> Maybe he can't learn his lesson, but I hope yeah. he does. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good point. But yeah. And you see him like in this episode, he, he defeats Frungnir who yeah. he like successfully defends his honor, but like really what was the result? Like he, I guess, instilled fear in the rest of the Yodnar because they looked up to Hjornir and right. he couldn't defeat Thor but was Thor just a manipulation of his father, of his father, Odin. But that, but and then that we is, see that again, the Thor and the Ferryman episode. Yeah. And that's one thing he brings back to the village, right? Besides that now his son has a, you know, a horse that can almost rival Odin's, right? It's that they come back to town and they're all less afraid of the giants, right? He made such an impact with that slaying the, the most powerful of the giants. Now the town is safe for probably, you know, foreseeable future, right? So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Sean, well, I think that's that, that does it for tonight. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night, David. Good night, John. Mm-hmm.